นโมทัสสะกุวาทูอรหัตูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะกุวาทูอรหัตูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะกุวาทูอรหัตูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนามัสสะ
it's, it can perhaps be a useful way of thinking about wholesomeness as the light that illuminates the journey or the nutriment on the journey who again may have fabulous ideas of how good it would be to go to such and such a place and have the strength, have the aspiration, have a map. Yet, if we lack nutriment on the journey, then again, probably we won't get refire. So, to deepen in this practice, to be able to feel sustained as we encounter the rigors of the journey of purification and there are times when it can feel really challenging what is it that sustains us what is the nutriment what is it that illuminates the path well it's useful to think in terms of the ability we have to cultivate or the accumulation we have of wholesomeness in traditional Buddhist culture there's a strong shared understanding of the place of of uh, making merit, or in Thai language, tambun. And punya, or bun in Thai language, punya is, it's the wholesome potential that's generated when there's kusulakama. When there's wholesomeness performed, there's a positive potential generated. Wholesomeness is like these various vectors oriented towards maturing on the spiritual path. So, this evening, if we could go through some of these forms of wholesomeness and reflect together on them, and obviously I'm not uh, presenting my reflections on these themes as canonical and they're not complete, uh, but maybe they will serve as, as triggers for your own uh, contemplation on the themes. And the first one I would like to raise up is the theme of the wholesomeness of trustworthiness. The Dhammapada verse 204, which some of you might know, which says, health is the greatest gain, contentment is the greatest wealth, trustworthiness is the best of kin, unconditioned freedom is the highest bliss. So this trustworthiness, or perhaps it's, we use the Pali word from the ten parami of satcha parami, trustworthiness and we're probably familiar with the opposite where we know what it's like to be in the company of somebody who is untrustworthy or if in our own case we maybe fall short of trustworthiness it, we do well to stop and consider what is, what is the effect of that, what is the effect of being trustworthy or untrustworthy? If we, if we're in the company of somebody who is trustworthy, how does that feel? We feel safe. There's a lot of talk these days about safe spaces, as if uh, somebody else is responsible for creating safe spaces. But we could also be thinking about how do we contribute to safety in this world? How do we contribute to that sort of an environment where? Our companions feel safe. Well, one way of contributing is by cultivating trustworthiness. 
trustworthiness. And this word kin, the Buddha used, trustworthiness is the best of kin. It's a word, old-fashioned word, which means usually means family. It could also, I would suggest, mean more than just our blood relatives. There's a, there's a word that's used in, <clears throat> very commonly used now these days in New Zealand, originally from, from the Maori language, uh, the word whanau, which, yes, can mean family, can mean relatives. However, it also, if I understand it correctly, has a connotation of those we feel held by, when we need to be held, when we need to be supported, these are the people we turn to, our whanau, our, our personal community, our trusted companions. And, and so identifying those, in our own case, right, who are our kin, who, and how do we relate to them? These people that we feel we would want to be supported by when we needed support. Do we honour that relationship? Can we offer that relationship to them? How do we cultivate trustworthiness? We might be minded to think it's a, a big deal and, and some great event that brings about an increase in trustworthiness. And, however, it can also come about because of very small things like when we say for instance that we're going to be somewhere at a certain time and we don't turn up how do the other people feel about that I know how I feel about it when I, I make time in my diary and they ask for the meeting and, yeah. and then they don't turn up at all or they turn up late how does that feel it doesn't feel good well that's what we do when we say we're going to be somewhere at a certain time and we don't turn up. Or we answer casually to a question like, if it's, uh, if it's the moon day tomorrow and so there's no work and so I, I ask, you know, were all the garden equipment put away? And the work monk realises, well, actually, he forgot to get it put away, but he's going to go and do it after the meal, and pretty quickly just says, oh, yes, yes, it's been put away. Well, it seems like a small thing. However, those small things, if we get comfortable with small compromises, then we leave ourselves vulnerable for making bigger compromises. When you see a public figure and you listen to the tone of their voice, and you sense whether you trust them or not. Now, you may or may not have evidence of their trustworthiness, but let's note that it matters. The amount of fake news that there is around these days and those of nefarious intent misusing the internet to spread around things that are not true so as to undermine the strength of community. That's seriously regrettable. And what is that? That's compromising trustworthiness. So as a force of wholesomeness, this trustworthiness is something that we could uh, certainly be usefully dwelling on. A close relative of that, I would um, suggest, is 
friendliness. The Buddha spoke often about Kalyanamitta, spiritual companions, and how essential they are on this journey. So if we, again, feel how we feel if we have a good friend, again, somebody that we know we can be open with, somebody we know gets us, what does that feel like? the goodness that comes from that, the happiness that comes from that, the relief that comes from that. Recently I got myself entangled in a quandary and I couldn't see how to deal with it and and recognizing that I had these various good friends that I could ring up and say, what do you think about this situation? How do you feel I should handle this? And, And that's precious. People we know who are not going to judge us when we need support. Uh, those friends who know how to listen. Those friends who, when we share things with them, they know, we know we trust that they're not going to spread it around. So having such friends, and then once again considering the possibility of offering that to others. This is one of the the beautiful things about spiritual community where you have friendship with like-minded people who you share those things that are most important in life. Like, how do I overcome these obstacles in my practice? And you speak with a friend about it and the friend listens and respects where you're at and offers honest comment. And that's something that we can also be cultivating. The ability to listen when somebody shows us that they need spiritual companionship, exercising the ability to simply meet them where they're at. It's very easy when somebody comes to us perhaps in despair or distress or loneliness and evidently looking for support, it's very easy to try and understand them conceptually, to try and fix them. But where's that coming from? In my experience, it's often coming from an aversion for their suffering. I don't want to see this person suffering because it reminds me of my suffering. I don't want to see this person in their state of limitation because it reminds me of my state of limitation. Well, with effort, maybe we can prepare ourselves in advance for being ready when we meet somebody like that. And instead of defaulting to try and understand them and then have a a clever answer and fix them up, maybe we could just meet them there, listen to them with inner quietness and and empathise with them. I've spoken before about a very meaningful encounter I had with Ajahn Chah when I was a young monk in Thailand and I was, I was in a very serious mess and went over to Wat Pa Pong I think <clears throat> I was accompanied by Dunwara Panya at the time and my Thai wasn't very good and Dunwara Panya translated my predicament to Ajahn Chah and, and he, he looked at me and his answer was, yeah, I've been there. 
I've been there. We were talking about the doubts that I was caught up in. And he said, you know, I've been there. And he goes on to talk about how when he was a young monk, he was so caught up in doubt that he, he said, see, such a bird, which means he thought his brains were going to explode. And that empathy, that being met without judgment and feeling seen is a great gift of friendship. So friendliness as a, as a force of wholesomeness is worth developing. Patience. All the great religions of the world teach about patience. But one of the really interesting and, I would say, important aspects of patience is that you can't develop it when you're having a good time. So this is something else that's helpful to prepare ourselves in advance to realise that when we're having a bad time, you've got a cold, your nose is running, you can't get over it. You could take some drugs, but it'll just put it off for a while. We could also just say, well, I'm going to be patient with this. I'm going to bear with this. Forbearance, that's another word for patient endurance. It's very different from bitter endurance. Bitter endurance is where we grit our teeth and we get resentful and I shouldn't have to put up with this. And Why hasn't somebody invented a vaccine to get rid of this cold virus? Why aren't there more drugs that can just wipe out the symptoms? That's well, it's not even bitter endurance. That's resentment. Patient endurance can be, can be a force of wholesomeness that supports other wonderful qualities. It can support clarity. You're having a really difficult time physically, but if there's patient endurance, in other words, if there's a willingness to just bear with it, instead of going up into telling ourselves stories in our heads and getting all head up over it, I'm going to bear with this. This feels, maybe it even feels unbearable. Sometimes life can feel really unbearable. And if we go up to our heads, we can imagine that it's actually unbearable. Of course, it's not actually unbearable because at that time we're still bearing with it. But if we get lost in our heads, well then we can believe that it's unbearable. Here we're talking about strengthening the heart. These forces of wholesomeness which strengthen the heart, patient endurance. The world doesn't talk about it. You don't see anything. I don't know if I've ever seen or heard anybody ever on television or a movie talking about developing patient endurance. A patient endurance is it's the same as we were talking before. The, like you're on a journey and the journey gets tough. What are we going to do? Give up? We can't necessarily make the journey agreeable. The weather might be difficult. Maybe you're hungry. Maybe you've fallen out with your travelling companion. Well, we can always stop and say, well, I'm going to make the effort to endure this. The Buddha recommended patient endurance as the ultimate force for purification. You call ultimate paramantapo, the ultimate force for purification. So I'm going to use this thoroughly disagreeable situation. Maybe it's just a moderately disagreeable situation. We don't have to wait for, for big moments. In fact, I 
would strongly encourage not waiting for big moments. Uh, small moments, it's like, you know, waiting for the bell to ring before the meal, instead of just sitting there and saying, why can't the Yajan stop talking and just ring the bell so we can eat? So, well, the Buddha praised patient endurance, and this is the opportunity where I'm feeling impatient, so I'm going to use this situation, this situation right here now, to see if I can bear with it without making a story in my head, without indulging in the feeling of restlessness in the body, just register it. I don't want this to be happening, and I'm going to bear with it. Patient endurance. Consciously cultivating wholesomeness. A lot of these qualities of wholesomeness, we, we're familiar with them. However, what we're talking about here is the effort to consciously cultivate them. Consciously cultivating generosity. Now, we might, we will, we all have heard of the encouragement to be generous. We all recognize that generosity is a good thing. However, if we make the cultivation of generosity conscious, then there's a chance we're going to benefit from it even greater. Of course, there are times when we feel selfish and mean and don't want to give our time, don't want to give our attention, don't want to offer to do the dishes, don't want to offer to help the work monk. There are times when we just feel, I want to do what I want to do. Yet if we stop and feel what that feels like, or feel what that feels like when we see somebody else being selfish, feel what it feels like when we see somebody else being selfless, like the image the Buddha encourages contemplating the Karaniyamata Sutta, a mother with her only child, that, that selfless gaze, that concern she has for the well-being, well-being of her child. Selflessness is beautiful to gaze upon. Selfishness is, whoa, that's painful. When we're caught up in it, we might forget how unattractive it is as a quality. However, if we don't wait until we're caught up in selfishness and meanness, but prepare ourselves by cultivating generosity, learning to, learning to remember the benefits that we have reaped from other people's generosity and how beautiful that is, other people's kindness, where maybe they didn't want to attend to us or maybe they didn't want to be patient with us, but they exercised generosity in, in paying attention and, and bearing with us in our diff when we've been sick and when we needed help and people have gone out of their way to be generous. Remembering that, remembering how good that feels can be a, uh, an encouragement for cultivating that quality within ourselves. And if we do cultivate that quality within ourselves, and, and then maybe in our quieter moments, it might be that we start to notice that if we, when we know how to be generous, it can affect this ability to let go of me and my way. The obsession with me and my way, again, is a major obstruction. It gets us into all sorts of difficulty in our formal meditation practice, in our engagement with the world, the obsession with getting what I want, when I want. How do we, how do we release out of that? Well, the cultivation of generosity might just help us learn to not take ourselves quite seriously. 
Certainly, it seems to me that we look at generous people, they, they do seem more happy. And then there's the wholesome quality of forgiveness. If we don't stop and contemplate forgiveness, we might assume that forgiveness means no longer feeling the pain of something that hurtful that happened in the past. Somebody said something or something happened that wherein we were hurt. And we might assume that forgiveness means feeling good about what happened or forgetting about it. Well, this is, this is not, not necessarily the case. Another way of reflecting on forgiveness is that the memory of the past might always be there, but are we actually obliged to invest resentment in that memory? Are we really obliged? This is, this is where formal practice can be tremendously helpful. You know. Meditating, maybe reach a state of some relative kind of mundane peace of mind and calm, and it's nice just to be there. And then up comes a painful memory. Possibly, if there's enough presence, enough attention, possibly you might catch yourself before reacting to follow that impulse to indulge in dislike. The impulse to indulge in dislike might be there, but the tendency to follow it, to cling to it, to get lost in it, is that an obligation? Is it an obligation to follow that impulse, to cling to dislike? Or is there the possibility of seeing the impulse, feeling the dislike, and letting it be like that. Possibly. It's worth reflecting on. When there's not forgiveness, when we ourselves dwell for days on end, weeks on end, sometimes years on end, and act out of our resentment towards other people, or towards ourselves. We can't forgive ourselves for mistakes we've made in the past. How does that feel? So reflecting in this way, we can again encourage ourselves. Forgiveness is not necessarily forgetting the pain. It's a change in our relationship to the pain of life. Everybody feels pain, but not everybody is getting lost in investing resentment in that pain. It's worth reflecting on. And talking about formal practice, the cultivation of samadhi as a force of wholesomeness. Probably most of us didn't grow up being taught about the benefits of developing steadied attention, the discipline of attention, the state of collectedness that can come about when we exercise the right kind of, the right application of skill. It's not necessarily easy to talk about, but, you know, like, how do you learn to float on water? How do you do that? How do you learn to float on water? You can sort of tell people how to do it, but it's really by trial and error. You realize that if you stop breathing, you sink. If you clench up and resist and get afraid you're going to sink, you sink. But somewhere in between there, maybe you just catch yourself a little bit of letting go, your breathing, 
you're not resisting and guess what? The water holds us. Trusting that will be held brings about the ability to float on the water. And maybe it's something similar that happens with that application of attention that brings about a stilling of the mind. If we try too hard and willfully to stop our minds and kind of got this meditation object and with a mantra or a sensation or, or a theme of reflection and we're trying desperately to make our minds peaceful, trying too hard, we fail. Not trying at all, just sitting there, whatever, and the mind's all over the place. Well, nothing much happens. Maybe there's another way another application of attention where we can just like you know like maybe teaching a child how to walk you trust the child has the potential so you hold their hand and then pull them up a little bit and and see if they can walk and but then they fall down again you don't criticize them you don't judge them you hold them and they get up and they try again they fall down eventually that gentle caring guiding and the child learns to walk. And so similarly with disciplining attention, the Buddha definitely encouraged this and developing a strength of attention that means the mind is not totally scattered. And so if there's a, a theme of reflection that comes up, like how do I find my way free from resentment and bitterness? How do I cultivate forgiveness? Well, without some degree of collectedness of attention, that's going to be very difficult. So, again, let's appreciate this as a, as a force of wholesomeness, as a form of kusala kamma that is really worth dwelling on and cultivating. Compassion. Conscious compassion. All of us have some degree of familiarity with compassion. A friend, when you, know, you see a friend suffering, the, the heart naturally goes out, I wish they were free from suffering. That's empathy in the context of pain. Empathy in the context of joy, that's called mudita in Pali. Empathetic joy. Empathetic sorrow, consciously cultivating empathetic sorrow is being able to receive beings in the context of their suffering without collapsing and resisting, feeling it. If we're addicted to feeling good, then this doesn't make sense to us. However, being addicted to feeling good, that's, you know, somebody's addicted to feeling good is a real nuisance to have around, because sometimes life hurts. It can help to have somebody be there with you, you know, when you're suffering in life. To be on the receiving end of compassion is a wonderful nutriment a wonderful source of support. So feeling that encourages us in the cultivation and then also recognising that we have the potential to offer this to others. Not to meet somebody in their suffering with some sort of judgement. How dare they be so confused? <laughs> or, what a nuisance that that person is so angry. Well, it can be very unpleasant to be around people who are angry, but with compassion, maybe there's a possibility that when you're with somebody who's angry and it's all being spewed out onto the world, 
instead of judging them and condemning them, maybe there's a possibility of reflecting, well, this person's heart is so contracted, so full of pain, that they don't know how to contain it anymore. And so look at that, it's being spewed out onto the world. And see how compassion could lead to equanimity. See how compassion could lead to maybe offering some skillful guidance. If we merely judge others or judge ourselves, if there's no compassion, then we're very limited. So one final theme I'd like to raise up on this contemplation on the cultivation of wholesomeness is that subject I've spoken about many times before is skillful restraint. When we look at the hugely regrettable injustices in the world, the unfairness there is in society, the unawareness, the insensitivity, it's not because people are bad. I would say people are not bad at all. There are bad or unwholesome or accusular impulses that people experience and get caught up in and then they get lost in them and then it looks like they're bad. To define somebody as bad or hopeless, that's a very superficial assessment of the situation. See if there's a way of inhibiting, skillfully inhibiting the impulse to react. Somebody says something insensitive, disrespectful, mean to us. Yes, we could just snap back and say something equally snide or even more snide back to them. Yes, we could later on go and say nasty things about that person. Or is there an alternative whereby we can skillfully feel what we feel, say, ouch, that hurts, it feels painful. Are we obliged to react or can we exercise sangwara or restraint in a skillful way so we're not indulging and we're not denying? Now, talking about these things, it can sound like you know, the, something we should be able to just manifest. In fact, the reality is that, that like any force that we might want to generate or cultivate, it can take a lot of effort. It can take a long time. The Buddha spent lifetimes developing these forces of wholesomeness, the ten parami that we're familiar with. Of course, we have a concept of the goal and I strongly encourage people to find their own concept of the goal. You can see what it says in the books. You can hear how somebody else talks about the goal. But to really make it ours, to say, this is what I'm interested in. Maybe for you, the goal means the cessation of all clinging to the aggregates of existence. Maybe that's how you imagine the goal. Or, or maybe the goal is the cessation of all greed, hatred, and delusion. Or maybe the goal is is um, realization of perfect wisdom and compassion. All of those could be valid. Personally, my concept of the goal, as you would be aware of, is this um, realization of an abiding and selfless, just knowing awareness. We have our own image of the goal. However, let's remember well how much effort the Buddha put into encouraging us with this cultivating of these forces of wholesomeness. As we're saying, they're the, the nutriment for the journey, they're the light that illuminates the path. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.
Handamayang Dhamma Gathaya Sadhu Karam Gathaya.